chapter 2 this morning. And what I forgot to do at the beginning was the announcements, but I'll give them to you in a nutshell. Uh, First thing is we are uh, right after service, instead of hanging out and talking here, we're going to go over to the new building that God provided this week. Um, You can ask a couple of people that were involved in the process. There was lots of uh, things that could have stopped it. At one point, I thought, we're not signing until next week because there were so many things going on. But that said, uh, through the hands of God's people and through His providence, God made it happen. Uh, when I went to bed Wednesday night, I didn't think we were going to sign on Thursday. And, uh, but God knocked down the barriers, um, used a couple of us, and uh, actually we, got the, we ended up getting to sign on Thursday. And what was great about it is when we signed, we walked at, we're sitting there at the table. Steve and I are signing our life away multiple times for the, for the church. And we're like, okay, sign this, sign this. And then we get done, and I, I was sitting there, and I was like, um, where's the keys? And they looked, everybody looked at each other like, what are you talking about? I'm like, what do you mean, what are we talking about? I just gave you money, and you just gave me paperwork. I don't care about any of those things. I want the key. <laughs> so we left, and we didn't even have a key to the place. <laughs> Isn't that great? So I texted the guy that's been letting us in. I called the lady. I was like, where's the keys? They're like, oh, because uh, we didn't have a realtor involved, which saved us a bunch of money, but that also meant that we had to do some extra steps. So anyway, I had to drive up to Park Hills because I was getting a key. So I could say, hey, we're in debt, but we got a reason for it. We have property show for it. Um, anyway, we got a key. We got in, uh, turned on a few, few things. I made sure that the toilets work in case we go over there. Somebody's got to go. First thing that happened, as soon as we walked in the door, my daughter looks at me and goes, I got to go potty. And there's no running water over there at the point at that time, and none of the toilets worked. I had to get all that going, so. <laughs> yeah, it looked like everything was fine, right? That's the joy of Facebook. You know, you, you think you know what's going on, but you have no idea. That said, God was faithful, and He is faithful. And I'm excited to show you guys what He's provided for us. And there are some things that need done. Um, so don't be afraid when we walk in and you're like, wow, they're, they're, that thing needs fixed and there's bugs. And that's going to be a work that we're all going to get to do together. And I think it's going to be fun. Um, it overwhelms me, which I'm glad of, because if it didn't overwhelm me, I would try to go in there and do it myself. I'm kind of that type. But the Lord over and over again was like, you can't do this yourself. Ha, 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 ha. You know, <laughs> so it's good. Um, that said, I'm, I'm excited and I'm really blessed to get to see where God's going to put us. So. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 2 this morning. I didn't tell the rest of the announcements. Wednesday's men's Bible study got all caught up. Wednesday's men's Bible study. uh, Kelly's opening the doors of the house again, so ladies, bring your kids over. uh, Let them play with all Lucy's toys and stretch her and get her all upset. And uh, uh, Kelly's going to have food and snacks. And and I'm trying to think. Oh, thank you, Jesse. Jesse just saved me right there. Um... And then uh, we have our weekly prayer, and I uh, hope you guys are reading through your Bibles. I was really blessed to get to read the story of Joseph this week and all the affliction he went through and how God used it for the greater good of the nation of Israel and all the nations that surrounded them. I actually almost referenced it this morning just because we all were reading it, but those of us that are doing the reading plan. So in Philippians chapter 2, um, We're going to start this morning, but I I want to start first by giving us kind of a theme of what's going on in Philippians. And Philippians is kind of known as the epistle of joy. But what I want to point out about the Philippian church and about Paul at the time that this letter was written is that they didn't have a whole lot of reasons that the world would say to give them joy. 
Paul was writing from prison, and he was writing to a church he had planted a, a, continent, a, a couple of countries away. And while he's writing to them, he's in jail chained. And so we talked about how Paul's attitude in his chains while he was in prison was that everything that had happened to him up until this point was for the furtherance of the gospel of the kingdom. That was his desire. It was greater than any other desire he had in his life was for people to know Jesus. And we all have things we have to do every day. It's just part of life. We were just talking about it yesterday, how... Many times we, we love our jobs and we know we're called to do this thing, but then we have a day where we have to do something that we don't like. But it's part of having the job. You have to take the good with the bad. Paul knew his calling in life was to go and share the gospel. But there were things that he had to do amidst that calling that he did not particularly like, but he recognized, he had the perspective to say, well, those things, though I don't like them, give me the opportunity to share Jesus with people. And Paul knew this more than anybody I know because when Paul wanted to go share Jesus in Jerusalem, it got him arrested. When Paul wanted to share Jesus in Rome, that meant that the entire process from him being arrested, taken to another king or another petrarch or another ruler that was evil, he would share his testimony over and over again. And every time he was not put to death, which was a miracle in and of itself. But then he finally ends up in Rome after being shipwrecked and on the sea overnight on a, on a chunk of wood, and he gets onto this island called Malta, and when he gets there, he finds this group of people that are essentially this, their own little kingdom in a pocket in the world that nobody's ever been to, be kind of the consistency of what we would consider New Guinea or some tribe in Africa that's never been touched, and when he gets there, he gets to share the gospel with them too through practical ways. He reaches into a wood pile to build a fire because they're all cold. He gets bit by a local snake that kills people if they get bit by it, and he doesn't die. And they think he's some sort of sorcerer or something. And he says, no, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. He's the one protecting me. That's the only way I can explain it. The power of God is involved in my life, and therefore, until he tells me I'm done, I'm invincible. And because of that, they had the king or the king's son had somebody sick, and, and Paul said, well, let me go see him. And he goes and sees him, and he heals him. So then he shares the gospel of Jesus Christ. He shares forgiveness of sins. He shares eternal life. And so Paul finally, after this, ends up in Rome, and he's thrown in jail. And while he's in jail there, he's still building up the body of Christ. He's writing letters to these churches he's planted. He's praying for them. And then he's also sharing his faith for the, with the Roman guard. And so he's everywhere he's going, he's making a, a, a furtherance, a pioneer advance for the kingdom. So in the midst of this, he's writing this letter to the Philippians who are in a country and they don't have very much. They're in a small town, if you will. They're in a small province of Rome. And while they're there, what we find out is that Paul actually gets a letter and Epaphroditus, who is a man from that region, comes to Paul And he he wants to check on them because they're concerned for Paul's well-being. And when he gets there, he finds out that Paul's written a letter. He sends it back to them and it says, I'm praying for you guys that you would be able to share your faith continually in Philippi. But then he also says, hey, not only am I praying for you, but everything that's happened to me is for the good. So I'm doing good. And then he writes to them because Epaphroditus doesn't just bring good news to Paul. He came to him also to say, hey, there's a couple of arguments going on in the church that are threatening to tear it up. 
And so Paul writes to them concerning this in this letter. So chapter 1 of Philippians is about Christ being first. He should be first in all things. I say should be because in the life of Christians, many of us, we claim him to be first, but he's not really. And we always wonder why we don't have any joy. It's because we haven't put Christ first. It's because we're not serving him in our job. It's because we're not serving him in our families. We're serving ourselves. And anytime Christ starts to impede or get over our trespassing line in our life and start to cause us to kind of have to shift a little bit, we get angry because he's getting on our, on our ground. And in the same way, we can be robbed of joy because we're serving our kingdom instead of his. And then when he says, I want you to do this, we're like, but I want to do this thing. And he says, if you seek me first, Matthew 6, 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these other things will be added unto you. And they'll be added in the right priority. So Jesus first is Philippians 1, and then chapter 2, others next. Remember, we're spelling out the word joy. Jesus, others, and yourself last. So in this chapter, he's going to talk about others. But he's not talking about our neighbors. He's talking about the brethren within the church. And so keep that in mind as we read these next couple of verses. It says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ... If any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition. That is, uh, in the King James, it says, let nothing be done through vain, for vain glory's sake or conceit, but in lowliness of mind or humility, let each esteem others better or more important than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So the key word in chapter 2 is others. And the Bible many times uses the word others when Paul's writing to the church and in the New Testament. But here's the deal. Paul struggled with people. And the Philippians struggled with people. Did you know that people can rob you of joy? People can rob you of joy. People can rob all of us of joy. Paul struggled with this just like you and I do. He struggled with it with the Roman people that were putting him in prison. He struggled with it with the people that wouldn't listen to him when he said, we don't need to leave on this ship. We're going to crash because this big storm's coming in. He struggled with it. And the Philippians had people problems too. They had two kinds of people problems. As a church, In this context, they had two kinds of problems, and they're the same problems that we're going to face. They have the problem of false teachers coming from the outside, outside of the church, who want to infiltrate and teach us things that are not according to Scripture. That's why it's important that we know what it says. So when a counterfeit comes in, we can say, no, that's not in there. I had this discussion the other day with someone about some religious practice, and I said, "I, I get it. I see the purpose for it. I just don't see it in Scripture. So why are we doing it? But the other side of the thing is that we also have opposition that comes from within. And if Satan can't destroy the church from without, he will join the church and he'll try to destroy it from within. And so in the same way, uh, members who were disagreeing in the Philippian church and quarreling inside the church, even though they're not uh, non-believers, they have the ability to destroy what God is doing. It's like cancer. Anytime your cells in your body start to live for themselves only and not for the rest of the body to serve them, 
That's called cancer, and that will destroy the body. And in the same way, we have to be careful that we're not, as believers, living for ourselves instead of living for others, to serve others, to take care of others, to look out for each other's needs. So what's the answer to the problem? If people can rob us of joy, many people's answer is uh, to avoid people. I just won't be around people anymore. That's, that's easier, right? It is easier, but is it God's will? Um, to avoid people at all costs is many people's answer. Or um, we'll just go to a smaller church where there's not as many problems. Well, there can be just as many problems in a smaller church. Um, how about this? We could just you know what? I can worship Jesus on my own. I don't need to go to church. I got my own thing. God knows my heart. All of those things. All of those things are things that Satan puts into our heads and goes, you can just do this instead. Except the fact that a Hebrews chapter 10 verse 24 says, do not forsake the fellowship of the brethren as is the case with many, but instead join together regularly and encourage one another. One translation says to stir one another up. At Cowboy Church, uh, Preacher Mike always says, spur one another on because of spurs and cowboys. And, you know, but the idea is the spurs on, a, on your boot when you're riding a horse aren't to hurt the horse. They're to encourage the horse. Okay, it's time to go. It's just something a little rough that gets their attention. And so we, in the same way, can't forsake one another to bless one another, we have to be together to be a blessing to one another. So, since these are believers in Christ, these brethren, he's writing to the church, they should be compelled by the love they have first received from Christ in order to serve one another. So he says in verse 1, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection of mercy... Fulfill my joy by being like-minded and having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. He says, if there's any consolation. Now, I don't know about you guys, and I say this all the time. There's lots of big words in the Bible I don't use, frankly. I, I didn't grow up speaking King James. I grew up looking at the Internet and texting people with one letter instead of an entire word. So that's just the culture I'm in, right? So we need to know what words mean. And this word consolation is actually the Greek word parakalesis, or parakaleo is where it comes from. And that means to come alongside, to help, or encourage, to be an example. So he says, if there is any example or encouragement in Christ, he says, do these things. Well, My translation, maybe you guys is the same way, says, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ. So it seems to be asking the question, is there any consolation in Christ? Is there any encouragement in Christ? But I like what another translation says. Instead of saying, if there is any, it says, since there is. See, he's not really asking, is there consolation in Christ? Paul wouldn't ask that. It's kind of like a rhetorical question. When someone asks you a rhetorical question, you, you don't answer it. Like, did you want me to trip over the, the shoes and trip down the stairs to your children? Of course not. What they're saying is you shouldn't have had your shoes there, right? So in the same way, Paul is writing. He's saying since there is an example and an encouragement in Jesus Christ, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. He says since there is consolation, since there is 
comfort of love you've experienced from Jesus. Since there is fellowship in the Spirit, since there is and has been affection and mercy shown toward us, these are all what should motivate us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 and 15, this is what Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. They were having problems from within. They were saying, well, I would love them except they're jerks. Or I would do something for them except they won't do anything for me. And what Paul does is he basically rebukes them and says, that's childish. That's not godly thinking. He says, the love of Christ compels us. You know what it means to be compelled? Pushed on. It's what your boat motor does behind you when, you when you kick it on and you hit the gas and you put it in gear. It compels the boat. Now, we, it propels the boat, but you get the idea. It pushes the boat forward. And so he says, he says, the love of Christ should be our boat motor. It should be what propels us forward, not whether or not somebody deserves to be loved. Ephesians 5, the trip up is always, you know, okay, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. It never says, husbands love your wives if they deserve it. It never says, wives submit to your husbands if they're not turds, you know, or, or if they're the best, you know, if they're the, well, I would, but he's not that great of a husband. It never says that. That's conditional love. But what Paul writes the love of Christ compels us. And then he says this, because we judge this way, that if one died for all, speaking of Jesus, then we all died in Christ, right? He says, and he died for all so that those who now live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So what is our goal? Is it to live for my kingdom anymore? No, that kingdom is dead. It was conquered by the love of Jesus. Now I live for his kingdom, and since I now live, I get to live for Jesus. And what that means is that it changes my relationship with him, but it changes my relationship with those who are his as well. And so we need to be careful that we don't just say, well, I'm doing this for Jesus and running over people to do it. We should be doing is serving out of the love of Christ. Compelled toward unity. So in verse 2 through 4, he says, if there's any consolation to love, which there is, if there's any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, he says, let this motivate us. Verse 2, then fulfill my joy because of that. Not because I say so. Paul didn't say, well, I said so, so you have to do it. He says, because Christ has done this for you, may you fulfill my joy by doing the same. He says, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. Being like-minded doesn't mean that we all like the same things and think the same way and have the same talents. That's uniformity. What he's saying is, I want you to have unity. We're not talking communism. We're talking Christianity. He's not saying, do everything that I say. He's saying, as far as the Lord gives you things to do, do them with one mind, having the same love being of one accord, of one mind. Mind there, that word means attitude, having a proper attitude. Now, you've heard the phrase, the adi- your attitude, uh, uh, what is it? Your attitude calls for your latitude. What is it? Anybody know? <laughs> okay, you haven't heard it. Okay, never mind. Abort mission. He's, your attitude can many times 
show, take you to where you're going to go. Your attitude will affect your actions. And so he says, let you guys have the same attitude. Let nothing be done, verse 3, through selfish ambition or conceit. Selfish ambition can be that, again, that ambition to serve yourself, to serve selfishness or conceit. But he says, in lowliness, or the word means humility of mind, let each consider others better than himself. Let each esteem others more important than himself. That is not the culture that you and I live in. What the culture that we live in says, get yours, prove to everyone how great you are, doesn't matter who you step on to get there, do it. Just do it, right? Conquer, Nike, that's what it means, conquer. But everybody that's ever played in any team ever knows that if one guy conquers on his own, then the rest of the team really loses, typically. Now, don't consider the NBA when you talk about that. Because one guy can go and dunk, but there are many people feeding him the ball. You know, we know all these individual guys. The one I think of is the one I thought of when I had the poster board on, on my wall, Michael Jordan. Now, I will not say that he was great because he was the best player ever. I will say that he was great because he played well with others and he was talented. Look at some of the guys today. I don't know their names, but I know many of them. They're ball hogs. That's all they are. And they're talented enough to deal with that. But Jesus isn't a ball hog. He's not. He, he lets us play. He, he actually wants us to play, even though he's Michael Jordan. But he's Jesus, so he's not really, you know, that's a horrible comparison. But, you know, Michael Jordan, the Jesus of basketball. No, no, Jesus would mess, he would mess him up in basketball. But my point is... <laughs> Sorry, went way off track. <laughs> let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others higher than himself. Verse 4, he says, Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So, with that in mind, he says, Being compelled toward unity to get to working together by the love of God not towards division and rivalry, to do this, but selfishness or self-seeking must be removed completely. So if you're in the body of Christ and all you ever think about is yourself, recognize this is a spiritual problem. You are not blown over by the love of God. You're blown over by your own, impressed by yourself. If we're impressed with ourselves still after realizing we need to be saved from our sins, from a Savior who died on a cross... We haven't gotten over ourselves yet, and God's still working on that. But let him get you over it so you can move forward to the blessing of being a part of the body. John chapter 13 is where I'm going to turn. Because in here, Jesus told us that not only would our humility and our unity and our love for one another be a blessing to those around us, but it would be something that proclaims that we are, in fact, God's children. John chapter 13, verse 34, says this. Jesus speaking says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. 
Now, we talked about Ephesians 5. I just quickly referenced it where he says, Husbands, love your wives, your wife, as Christ loved the church. That's a high standard, right? We, we hear that and we go, whoa, I can't even obtain that. It's like me looking at my Michael Jordan poster and seeing six foot six. I can't attain to that, you know? But what God says, he's, he always sets the standard higher than we think we can obtain because we cannot obtain it on our own. We have to trust Jesus to get there. Now, what he says in there is a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. How are we supposed to love people? Like Jesus loves me. And then he says that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Will, if you never spoke a word, but you just treated people the way that Jesus has just said in this passage, would they know that you're a follower of Jesus Christ? He says, by this, the world would know that you're my disciples. If you never spoke a word about Jesus, would people know that you are a disciple of Jesus? That's a question that we all have to consider. Because there are many days where I would say no for my own life. And I'm supposed to be leading this thing. So if that's the case, I'm assuming that most of you struggle with it too. But my point is, is that not only would this be a witness of God's real work in our lives individually, it would be a witness of God's real work in between us and making our relationships right with each other. One another is seen over 20 times in the New Testament. He says in Romans chapter 12, verse 10, prefer one another. In other words, what he's just said in the Philippians, consider others more highly important than your, yourself. In 1 Thessalonians 5.11, he says, build one another up, or edify one another is the word that my new King James uses. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, he says, bear one another's burdens. <laughs> Somebody's carrying something physically, and you see they need help, help them. Now, we don't oftentimes run into that unless our wives are running in the back door carrying 80 bags of groceries and the kids, you know. But help. What does this do? It shows that you, you understand what God's done for you. And then he says, uh, warn or caution one another. Admonish one another. Romans fifteen fourteen. That we are supposed to, as the body of Christ, not just to be happy all the time and act like everything's fine, but when we see a brother that's in a spot that they might get in, in trouble or they're going to be caught in sin and they're going to... We warn them, hey, I see what you're doing over here and I'm not judging you. I'm just saying this doesn't seem... I've been there before and maybe we need to deal with this. Maybe we need to watch out for this because you're getting ready to go off the edge of a cliff. This is going to be spiritual problems for you. But then he also says in Romans 14, 13, do not judge one another. And what he's saying there is not to inspect the fruit, which is a biblical thing we can do, but to look at their lives and say, well, they're, they're not living right. He says, don't judge one another, but use that discernment you might have to warn or caution one another. But we have to do this with humility. Here's the deal. If we would just live out these first four verses... How much difference would the church make in the world if we live out the simple commandment that God's given us? Instead of only knowing the Word of God and what He's told us to do, living it out. How much of an impact will we make? This kind of living takes one simple thing, though. It takes humility, which means that it takes submission. 
We don't like to submit. Think about it. Watch wrestling matches. They put them in the submission hold. They got them down and they can't breathe. The guy's not tapping out. He's like, I'm not giving up. I'm, I'm going to keep going. But many times we say, Lord, I've surrendered all. And he says, no, you haven't. You go, yes, I have. You know, and in the meantime, we don't do what he, why do you sit, call me Lord? Now that's lost for us because we look at our nation and we've got a president. We vote him in. But many times what we forget is that what God's word says is we're supposed to submit to governing authorities as unto the Lord. In, in the nations that he's talking about, when the king said, you will do this, they did it or they would be put to death. So to come from the kingdom of the world to the kingdom of God, we go, well, Jesus is my Lord, but there's grace. And so I don't have to really do everything he's told me to do. But what my Bible tells me is we, while we don't have to, we're missing out on his best. And so uh, this kind of living takes submission to the Father. Whenever God gives us something to do, he also gives us the power to do it. But it takes submission to his authority. And so he gives us an example, and he gives us four examples in this chapter, in the entire chapter. He gives us the example of Jesus. He gives us the example of Paul. He gives us the example of Timothy and a man by the name of Epaphroditus. But we'll start with Jesus, and Paul started with Jesus because he is the ultimate example. So in verse 5, he says this, "'Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus.'" Now, keep this in context because he's talking about in, in, the, in the context of us serving and loving one another. He says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Now, there's a lot in this. But what he's saying is, let this mind, remember we said that's the word attitude, let this attitude be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Then he goes on to describe the attitude of this, this man that was God before the creation of the world. He's the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords. When he spoke, things began existing. So this guy comes down, he takes on human flesh, not just human flesh, but he doesn't come like you or I would come if we were God and said, I'm going to become a human. How many of you do you think would go, you know what, I'm going to become a human. I'm going to be like the most rich human. I'm going to be a king already when I get there. And I'm going to let my kid be born in uh, modern times. So there's not all kinds of, you know, medical problems. It won't be in a stable. You know, we picture Jesus being born. We just got done celebrating that a couple months ago. And when he was born, we picture like the manger scene we got in our house. And it's got this little box, the manger, which is a feeding trough with the cleanest hay I've ever seen. But Jesus wasn't born in that. There was the smell of urine and poop. Can I say poop? <laughs> Forgive me if you don't think I can. But I got a three-year-old. We say it all the time. But then he was born into these humble beginnings in a town that nobody had ever heard of. Now, if you're talking to somebody that's not from the state and they say, where are you from? Do you say Arcadia Valley? Or do you say, I live south of St. Louis? I mean, I lived in Farmington and said that. I live about an hour and a half south of St. Louis. They were like, oh, okay, I know where St. Louis is. But nobody knew where Nazareth was. It was very much like our towns here. If you go 
travel abroad, nobody's going to go, oh yeah, I know where Arcadia Valley is. I know where Ironton is or Pilot Knob. They don't know that. Jesus was born in a no-name town to the rest of the world. And he is God. He's not a God. He's not some other God. He's not a, a human being with superhuman God powers. He's God with human flesh. And what this passage tells us is that his attitude was, he was in the form of God. And what he means by form is not so much like he was shaped like God outwardly like we would think. But what it means is uh, an outward expression of one's inward nature. So he had the, the characteristics and the attributes of God. He is, in fact, God, but he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. There's a better translation, and many of the other ones get it, I think, better than the New King James, that says he did not count equality with God a thing to be clinched to, held on to. Like when someone tells you, hey, uh, I remember I worked at the gas company, we had work cars, and there was like one that smelled really bad and and, and it had a tire, you had to air up every time you took it out. And then there was another one that was like the brand new one. So, of course, the guy that had been there the longest gets dibs, right? And so many times I was like, hey, I'm I'm going out to the field. I'm going to go measure some pipe and I'm going to do a couple of things. And they'd be like, okay, why don't you take that car? And I was like, I really want that one. Well, in this case, Jesus would be the person with the best car. He didn't look at it as something to hold on to selfishly. He'd have been the guy going, hey, take my car. It's the best one. It'll, you, know, you won't have to worry about a flat tire, you know, all those things. Jesus did not consider his godliness or his position on the throne of God something to be held on to selfishly. He was willing to lay it down so that you and I would have the opportunity to meet God in human flesh and see what God is truly like. He is the image and the glory of God. If you want to know what God the Father is like, look at Jesus. That's what he told his disciples. If you've seen me, he said, you've seen the Father. If you want to know how God would interact with what his thoughts are towards this particular thing or that particular situation, look at Jesus. So he says he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God or, or his position, something to be held on to selfishly, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. That word, that phrase there, making himself of no reputation, is the word, uh, it's the great kenosis written about in Scripture. And if you've ever read commentaries, guys go on for pages and books and books about it. But it's the great emptying. He poured himself out of his position and his authority. He laid it aside for you and I. And when he did that, he didn't do it to go, hey, look at me and how I'm giving up my rights. He just did it quietly. And it was something that was planned before the foundation of the world. But then he took the form of a bondservant, which means a slave, and coming in the likeness of men, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. Now, who was he obeying his entire life? The Father. He obeyed the Father. So until he left his throne, until he left heaven, his position in glory in the Trinity, he came down to earth. He had never had to be obedient before. The Trinity just agrees all the time. Hey, I think we're going to do this. All right. There's no conversation like you and your spouse where you go, hey, where are we going to go to eat? I don't know, where do you want to go to eat? 
Everybody has that conversation, by the way. There's never any like, hey, we're, we're going to, well, I don't really want, we can, have you ever heard wives say, we can go anywhere you want. It's your pick tonight. And you're like, well, I want this. No. <laughs> I won't go any further than that, but you know the conversation. Husbands do it too. I do it. I'm guilty. But my point is, is that in the Trinity, there's never any of that. They are in agreement all the time. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they all work together in unity. There's, there's no disagreements. There's no disunity. It just, it happens. Let us make man in our image is what they said at the very beginning. I say they, but it's God in three persons. So when we get to here, Jesus lays aside his deity, found in appearance as a man, verse 8, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, obedient to the Father, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has also exalted him highly and given him the name which is above every name. So the pathway to glorification, the pathway to being lifted up by the Lord, exalted, is humility and obedience. Jesus went there that way. We can't go there any other way. Obedience to the Father. So how do we have the same attitude? Well, Jesus, in his attitude, verse 7 says, Jesus serves. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, I quoted it like almost every night for the first year we met as a church. We studied the book of Mark, and the theme was found in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, where it says, even the Son of Man did not come to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, to serve and to sacrifice. And so, Jesus serves, verse 7. Verse 8, Jesus sacrifices. We just went over that in Mark chapter 10. And then in verse 9 through 11, Jesus, in everything that he does, he glorifies God. It says there again, he says, uh, Therefore God also has highly exalted Jesus and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. Do you know that those that reject Jesus Christ will still have to bow to him? That's crazy. So those of us that have said, you know what? I'm going to follow God in this life. I'm going to obey him. I'm going to trust him. We, we bow the knee now. and We should. But to those who say, no, God, like Proverbs 14 says, the fool has said in his heart, no, God. In other words, I won't. No, I'm God. You're not, is what the fool says. But those who reject God for eternity and breathe their last breath and never renege on that, they will still have to bow the knee forcibly. They will not have a choice. We get to choose now. He has exalted him and given him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, meaning Master, to the glory of God the Father. So, simple humility and submission in the life of Jesus to his Father's will led to his exaltation. Now, contrast this. We have Jesus, and we have Satan, okay? Satan, we looked at a few weeks ago in Isaiah chapter 14. He said, I will. I will ascend to the throne of God. I will be like the Most High. I will. I will. I will. Now, contrast that with Jesus, who said, thy will. In other words, your will be done, Father. 
Whatever you want me to do. Life, death, suffering, persecution, uh, success, whatever it is, your will be done. Thy will be done. And, and, and imagine this. When Jesus was, on the night that he was betrayed, he was praying and he was so humbled and he was so stressed. He knew what was getting ready to happen. In order for him to submit to the Father, he was going to have to give up his very life. And he was so stressed about it, he was bleeding as he prayed and as he sweated great drops of blood. But as he was praying and as he was submitted to the Father, he said, Lord, if there's any other way that all of humanity can have the opportunity to be saved, let it come to pass because this is too much for me. But not my will, but yours be done. And that's the contrast between pride and selfishness and humility and submission to the Lord. You got to be careful because if there's even an ounce of, but I want my will to be done, you can fall into the same trap that Satan did. And because of that, you can find yourself at war with God rather than in line with his plan. And so let me ask these questions. Are you willing to think of your brothers and sisters in Christ before you think of yourself? Are you willing to serve others instead of your own interests first? Are you willing to sacrifice for others so they will see the life of Christ living through you? And are you willing to do all of these things in order to glorify God through your life? Is your main focus in life to glorify God? If it is, then no matter what you have to do to do that, that God allows into your life or even purposes into your life, you'll still have joy. If your main focus, if your primary focus in life is to glorify God, then no matter what happens to you, you'll be like Paul. You'll be shipwrecked, but you'll have joy. You'll be bitten by a a deadly snake, but you'll have joy. You'll be thrown in prison, but you'll be able to encourage people still. You'll have joy. If you are willing, it will mean life to the body of Christ as well, not just to non-believers. Because if you're willing to submit to whatever God's purposed for your life, and have joy in it, and serve the Lord anyway, other people will, it'll be like a forest fire. Your little light or your big flame will set other people on fire for Jesus too. They'll, They'll say, man, if they can have hope going through that thing and joy, how can I not in my own situation? It'll spark more faith. So if you are willing, God will use it. But in the meantime, your life will be filled with joy. So turn with me to Mark chapter 8. I've got a couple of passages, and then we'll close. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. That is not the passage I thought it was. <laughs> Let's turn to John 13. Like I said, we're just going to do a little Bible drill here. John 13. Let's look at our example that we talked about today. This, I believe, describes the entire passage we've read. John 13, 1. It says, Before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands 
and that he had come from God and was going to God, he rose from supper, he laid aside his garments. Now compare this to what we've just read, Jesus laying aside his authority, his deity. He laid aside his garments, he took a towel, and he girded himself. That just means he tied it around him. He literally took the form of a slave. This wasn't just any slave. This was the slave that basically was a doormat. When we walk into our houses, there's a doormat, and there's a place to put shoes, right? Well, Jesus lived in a time where they didn't have the doormat. They had a servant. They had a slave. And he was the slave that basically cleaned the poop off your feet. Because when they were walking around, there was animals everywhere going to the bathroom. And as they walked down the street, their sandals would get it on them, but they would also get it inside their sandals. Now, don't picture that. That's not the point. It's gross. So Jesus, having this supper, had all of his disciples come in, and no one had ever played the doormat. Nobody cleaned their feet. So after they ate, he rose, he took the towel, and he girded himself. And they all knew what he was doing. They all knew that he was taking on the form of a slave. After that, he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? This was detestable to Peter, because Peter looked at him as a leader, as a a ruler, that was going to be the next ruler. And so to Peter, this is offensive. But what does Jesus say? He answered to him, what am I, what I am doing to you, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. So then Simon reneged. He said, Lord, not my feet only, but wash my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. Consider this. When Jesus washed his disciples' feet, he washed Judas Iscariot's feet, fully knowing what Judas was going to do. Have you ever loved somebody that you knew was going to betray you? Have you ever loved somebody you knew hated you? Jesus did. He is our example. He says, I don't don't tell you to love your neighbor only. I tell you to love your enemy as well, because this is how the kingdom of God shows the love of God. When we love people that hate us. Jesus was going to sell, excuse me, Judas was going to sell Jesus for the price of a slave. However many pieces of silver. That's how much they would pay for the cheapest slave. Like the -the run-of-the-mill, hey, we're going to have you wash the poop off our feet, slave. Buy a person. And Judas sold him for that same amount. So when he had washed their feet, verse 12, taken his garments and sat down again, here's what he said to them. Here's what he wanted them to learn. "Do Do you know what I have done to you? You call me a teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If then I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you as an example, excuse me, for I've given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So what he's saying here is love people, especially the body of Christ, like I have loved you. 
The, the commandment in the beginning was in Numbers and in Exodus. He says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now, I don't know about you guys, but that is, that's quite the standard. We kind of read over it. But I heard a story just this week where a woman wanted to have an impact. She had moved to a foreign country. She didn't know the language very well, but she did know Jesus. And so what she did was with the little language she knew to speak to that culture, she spoke to her neighbors, literally. And she spoke to them and she said, hey, I know you guys are busy and you don't have time to cook meals, but I want to cook you a meal. And they said, you don't have to do that, you know. And she was like, no, no, I want to cook you a meal. So she cooked them a meal. And then she left and they ate the meal. And then she came back. She was like, hey, I know that I, when I have a meal, I like dessert afterwards. So I brought you guys some donuts and made you some coffee. She's treating them practically like she likes to be treated. And so afterwards, she left, and, and then she came back, and she said, hey, you guys are busy. You didn't have time to cook the meal. I, I want to do your dishes for you. Oh, you don't have to do that. She did their dishes. Now, in our culture, that might seem a bit intrusive. But over and over, she did this over the course of six months. By the end of six months, that couple prayed to receive Jesus. And it wasn't because they quoted Scripture. It wasn't because she handed them tracts and said, Jesus loves you or thumped a Bible on their head and said, you're sinning and going to hell. What she did was she, she revealed the love of Jesus to her neighbors in a very practical way. Now, many of us would say, I can't quote scripture, I can't get up there and preach. But many of us can cook a meal. Many of us can help somebody with gas. Whatever it might be that God gives you to do, Jesus can use that to save people's souls. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his own soul? Jesus says, give up your life and you'll gain it. <laughs> Pour into people, and what you'll find is many of them won't believe still, but the, and they'll take advantage of you, just like Judas did Jesus. But there will be a group of people that will be with you for eternity, for one sacrifice, for one act of service, for one lifestyle that looks nothing like the rest of the world. So, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you for his power and his might and his strength and his ability to protect us and provide for us. Lord, I'm blown away that though you have all this and it is your right to rule and reign over the stars, over the planets, the solar system, it's all held together by your power. And yet you took on the form of a bondservant and you became a human just like us, susceptible to disease and ridicule, and mocking, and even death, and yet you were willing to do it for me. Father, I pray that you would help us to see that sacrifice and that action of love that is proven by actions, not just words, and help us to love people like you loved us, that like you continue to love us. Lord, um, help us to see the opportunities you've laid before us and not to consider ourselves so highly that we just look over those opportunities. Help us to see them as God-given opportunities to promote the kingdom, to show that not only that I love my neighbor, but I love my neighbor because Jesus loves my neighbor and because he's first loved me. So, Father, thank you for loving us like that. Thank you for showing us tangibly. Thank you for getting dirty. Thank you for getting involved in our lives intricately. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see how much we've been loved 
and to show that to the world. Help us to blow people over by your love. In Jesus' name, amen.